This is Asia in Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of Asia in Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from our experts in Asia Pacific on the issues that matter most to businesses. Hi, everyone. This is Angela Mancini, partner Control Risks, and I lead the Asia Pacific Markets Group. In today's Asia in Focus program, we're going to turn the spotlight onto Sri Lanka and look at the developments that are happening in the country a few months now since the crisis. Many have followed the situation that happened back in July with the unrest. We had protests. We saw the president make a a pretty hard exit. We've then seen a crackdown wherein the protesters and some of the leaders of the protest movement have been arrested or had to go into hiding. And the instability has indeed eased a bit since the new administration took office. But the country is really struggling with a quite severe economic crisis, which was the key driver of the July unrest. A UN report came out earlier in September uh, noting that Sri Lanka is at a critical juncture in its political life and it's in a serious economic crisis and human rights are being impacted as well. So the country's future remains uncertain. We've been getting a fair amount of calls here at Controllers from clients looking at that market, um, trying to figure out what's going on. And we're keen to speak a little bit more about that today. Sri Lanka is perhaps unique in that its profound economic and social crisis has been authored by one family, the Rajapaksas. However, what is rather more broadly true and interesting for our clients is just how this economy is going to negotiate with both the international community, major creditors and the IMF. That example is replicable for other markets. Similarly, how our clients are going to deal with a sudden crash in very key services in this economy is a a feature that's going to be replicated in other economies around the region. So look out for that example. That was Steve Wilford, partner and head of our global risk analysis team for Asia Pacific at Control Risks. We also have into our discussion today, Khalid Shah, who's an analyst based in Delhi, who has long followed the developments in Sri Lanka, actually from the ground there. Khalid, let's start with you. Uh, Again, you've been looking at that market very closely for a very long time. Can you give us a quick overview of what's actually happening there just now? So let me begin by uh, telling you what happened recently. We saw celebrations in golf face area after Sri Lanka won the Asia Cup cricket final against Pakistan. Uh, We had people coming and celebrating uh, this victory. This is the same area where we witnessed a wide-scale protest against the Rajapaksha family, where protesters were camped uh, for many days uh, demanding their resignation. That is a stark image of how situation has uh, improved considerably over the last uh, few weeks after a new administration came in. There is an ongoing crackdown against the protesters uh, who demonstrated in the golf face area for over 100 days and that has certainly kept protests away and reduced civil unrest risks significantly but this is a momentary change. Talking about the politics, you know, Ranil Vikramasinghe, who was sworn into power after President Gotabaya Rajapaksha left the country, has failed to 
uh, bring in a national government. He made efforts to cobble up an alliance of opposition parties to come together and uh, form a unified government uh, to tackle with the challenge. But the principal opposition party has rejected this offer. So what we have now is a president who is in power only because the Rajapaksha family wants him in power. Uh, he derives his parliamentary uh, majority from the SLPP coalition led by Rajapakshas and much of his reforms laws will have to go through the approval of the Rajapaksha party. There is also a lot of uh, say about how his cabinet is full of people who are loyal to Rajapakshas and this happens to be a situation which uh, continues to anger the people. The political situation may have improved considerably from what we saw a few months ago. Ranil Vikramasinghe is in power. He has produced an interim budget. He is already holding negotiations with the IMF. There seems to be a broad political stability on the surface. But what is happening behind the scenes is that uh, perhaps the Rajapaksha dynasty is gradually making their return in the public sphere. Uh, we saw some moves made by Mahinda Rajapaksha and his brother Basil Rajapaksha who held meetings with his party colleagues. And broadly the outlook is that while the Rajapaksha's are not going to do well in the next election, but they still hold a considerable sway in their support base. Ranil Vikramasinghe will remain in power for as long as Rajapakshas want him. He's going to grant a certain degree of immunity to Rajapaksha, Rajapakshas against corruption cases, so on and so forth. In return, the Rajapakshas will rally their parliamentarians in his favor. The government has already presented its outlook with regard to the economy. The government is currently following the IMF conditions and some of the macroeconomic changes brought in recent months are in line with what IMF has demanded. There has been an increase in oil prices, electricity price prices, as well as other utilities. This is to basically increase the revenues of the government. Similarly, last month, an interim budget was presented by Ranil Vikramasinghe in the parliament, where he said that the tax to GDP ratio of the country is going to increase to 15% by 2025. We have already seen an increase in VAT taxes from 12 to 15%. And in the next budget, which is going to be produced in November, we will see further more increase in the taxes. Broadly, the economic challenges are not going to go away very soon. There is a huge debt that the country has to repay. The IMF bailout will really bring in some confidence uh, in the economy. And uh, this may help the government to uh, secure some bilateral bridging finance. But there remains a big challenge which is that the current government does not have the mandate of the people. The people are against Rajapakshas, but because Rajapakshas hold a significant majority in the parliament, they have been able to appoint a prime minister and a president who are beholden to Rajapakshas and in a, are in a way controlled by them. We also saw the return of Gotabaya Rajapaksha to the country. It didn't lead to any protests as such. And from our source inquiries on the ground, we're getting to know that in coming months, we will see Gotabaya and other brothers making public appearances, explaining how the situation went berserk in the country, and also making significant inroads and outreach to their base in the country. Khaled, thanks. That was a great overview of the country and what we might expect to see in the more immediate to near term. Steve, let's turn to you. I know you're looking at this closely as well and also talking to quite a lot of clients that have operational footprints in Sri Lanka, but that are also looking at the country more broadly and clients of ours that, that are looking at as it relates to you know, their business futures across broader Asia. What are you seeing 
And what do you think businesses should be watchful for? Just from looking at this situation, there's a real, there's a geopolitical takeaway from this, and there's actually a sort of very workaday operational takeaway from it. Maybe if I start with the workaday first, with Sri Lanka, what our clients experienced was actually a very rapid and somewhat unexpected descent into uh, widespread civil unrest, which quite frankly was pretty, in the scheme of things, pretty well behaved and didn't directly impact their businesses. What did directly impact their businesses was the catastrophic crash in the value of the Sri Lankan rupee, uh, the fact that the government literally ran out of money in order to pay for imports of uh, vital staples, such as food and fuel, which in turn developed into an energy and a micro energy crisis, which shut many of our clients' businesses down. So it was a, an interesting case study, if you like, in the exigencies of crisis and contingency planning in what was in fact in the run-up to this, at least if you look at the G20 definitions, was a middle-income country. And there's potential for this kind of catastrophic collapse in really basic infrastructure to suddenly hit our clients in a number of other economies, both globally and within the region. Pakistan is the obvious one that springs to mind where you have, if you like, a confluence of uh, very difficult national and subnational politics crashing into the side of a catastrophic climate change related event. Other economies in the region, such as Bangladesh, are also struggling and are also in, in conversations with the IMF. Laos is in deep debt trouble as well. And whilst the impact to business may vary, I think the common theme is as we stare down the eye of a global recession from Ghana to Egypt to Tunisia to Zambia to countries in our part of the world, there's potential for very sudden and catastrophic changes to operational risk. So clients, make sure you, you've got your monitors on, make sure you're thinking about contingency planning for these particularly vulnerable markets. That's the first bit. The geopolitical end of the scale, I think Sri Lanka is also an interesting bellwether from the point of view of how it deals with its debt. As Khalid mentioned, negotiations ongoing with the IMF for a just short of $3 billion external financing to essentially shore up the country's fiscal position to get, frankly speaking, the lights back on. And that is that comes with demands for reform from the IMF. What also needs to be noticed is just how the creditors behave in this story. I mean, Sri Lanka owes the world. Nobody's really sure how much Sri Lanka owes the world, but it could be anything from between 80 to 100 billion US dollars. It has been on a massive bender of borrowing in recent years. And that has to be dealt with in order for the IMF package to function. And there's been a lot of talk about key creditors, the largest single creditor is China, single creditor. But if you look at non-syndicated loans, you look at sovereign bonds, it's by far the private market that has lent Sri Lanka the most money to the tune of 12 to 13, 13 billion dollars against China's five. But how these creditors collaborate with each other to get Sri Lanka's debt burden under control is going to be quite crucial. 
in order for that IMF debt, that IMF bailout to, to function effectively. So I think for those interested in emerging markets that are in the negotiations with the IMF, it's a really interesting case study and one to watch. And it'll be very interesting to see how China particularly behaves in this story. It's not a member of the Paris group of major uh, creditor nations. And so uh, it has a tendency traditionally for countries that it's lent to that are under distress to simply give them more loans on slightly more favorable terms, sort of bridging loans. The IMF will be very reluctant to roll out its program if that's the only card that China is willing to place on the table here. We saw quite recently Zambia, which has had its major fiscal difficulties. The credit committee there was co-chaired by France and China. And I think that was a very interesting and positive development. And if we see something similar emerging under creditors where China takes a leading but inclusive role in Sri Lanka's debt workout, that bodes well for the 25% of global emerging market debt that is owned by China. So that's certainly one to watch. We'll return to the conversation with Stephen Collin in just a moment. But for now, uh, please know that you can click on the link below in our podcast notes to follow our Asia and Focus podcast series if, if you like what you've been hearing. We'll be bringing regular briefings from across the region and actually across the world. We have one of the largest team of in-house analysts globally looking at these issues across many, many markets all day, every day, working with clients on the ground, helping them with proactive investment opportunities as well as reactive crises issues. And it's that analysis and insights that we're bringing to bear in this podcast series. So please do visit our thinking section on our website if you are interested in more. And for now, let's continue the conversation. Colin, let's come back to you. Um, We've been talking a lot about the risks in Sri Lanka and, again, the spillover effects as it relates to broader emerging markets, especially the debt issue. But let's also talk about opportunities. From your point of view, are there still opportunities in Sri Lanka? Um, if for businesses still operating in the country or looking at new investment at the country, in the country, if at all, what lessons can they think about from previous crises to bring to bear in this situation? Uh, you know, at present, the government has to look at how they will privatize and disinvest in their state-owned entities. Remember these state-owned entities, some of them are cash-strapped, are ridden with debt, are not making enough revenues to sustain. And the government has to really pitch in and cover up for their losses. So there's going to be a spate of disinvestments in the state-owned companies. Our understanding is that there will be at least 50 companies which are owned by the government or in which the government has stakes that will be put on the market. The primary one among them is the Sri Lanka Airlines. Uh, What we have heard from our sources on the ground is that it will be broken down into three entities. Uh, One of the entity, which is a loss-making entity, will perhaps be retained by the government. The other two will be, you know, private investors will be invited to invest in other two. Similarly, the Ceylon Power Corporation, uh, which uh, is the government's public utility supplying electricity to the country, that will also be broken down into various small entities and private investment will be invited there. 
There is also a talk about a lot of opportunity in the petroleum sector where the government feels that private players need to be brought in. The government is willing to allow space for a third petroleum retail uh, company to come in. They want it to be a public-private partnership with wherein a company will get near about 400 petrol bunks across the country, but with the condition that they bring in some investment. All of these, remember, are government-owned entities and there are significant reputational risks attached in investing these companies. So I believe any investor who looks at an opportunity in the PSU sector, the public sector undertakings, they will have to do a very thorough risk mitigation uh, planning uh, as well. Similarly, in the tourism sector, I was reading in the news that the government has announced its decision to allow casinos to operate on a 20-year license. This is one of the first few decisions taken by the government to attract investment in the tourism sector. Remember, tourism contributes 12% to the country's GDP, and there will be a lot of public policy focus on this sector. So for a lot of private players, the government will perhaps go out of its way to accommodate their concerns when it comes to attracting foreign investment. Uh, talking about the challenges, you know, one of the big challenges which I see on the anvil is whether the current government will sustain, which means the businesses will have to really monitor the developments closely, do scenario planning so that if at all there is a change in the government, we have already seen uh, two changes happening. How will they navigate those troubled waters? Similarly, the another concern that is coming up is that we have heard some talk from the government that they want to restructure their domestic debt, which can unfold another crisis in itself. The government has indicated that it wants to restructure the domestic debt, but the central bank has opposed it, saying that this could lead to a banking collapse. We don't know whether the government is going to pursue this, but certainly an event to look out for. The other problem, I believe, for the private companies, which will remain an overriding feature, is profit repatriations. There are a lot of foreign companies in Sri Lanka, but they're not able to take out profits out of the country because the banks are not offering any dollars. So I believe the key uh, takeaway for the clients is to have crisis planning scenarios in place, do stakeholder mapping, understand who are the key players in the current political setup, and understand that this is a fairly fluid situation and anything can happen six months down the line. So we do recommend to our clients to do a thorough review of the current uh, political setup, have an understanding of the, how the regulatory dynamics are going to change in the country, and at the same time, uh, look at the security aspects as well. Because remember, the crisis continues. If the government is not able to pay for fuel tankers, if the government is not able to pay for food that is being imported from other countries, we may see protesters back on the streets. Steve, any last thoughts from you? Again, I know you talked to some of our largest clients in Asia and they're looking at this market. I think Khalid's done a great job outlining the opportunities in some of the sectors. And also, if you are going to operate there, what some of the challenges are. Any final thoughts to add? As has been clearly set out, the situation in Sri Lanka is fluid and really quite dire. But I think we've also pointed out that probably the nadir has been reached. And in the next six to 12 months, we should be seeing the situation stabilize. Crucial to that, as we've already said, is IMF workout packages and relationships with creditors. For clients with operations in Sri Lanka, there's really not too much more to be said other than 
maintain a watching brief, the crisis management measures that you've almost certainly already triggered are going to have to be maintained and remain in place for the short to medium term. But I would try and end on an optimistic note. And it's worth reminding everybody that in terms of human development indicators, notwithstanding the fact that probably up to a third of the Sri Lankan population currently can't get enough nutritious food, notwithstanding that short-term disaster, Sri Lanka has traditionally been tipping into the threshold of middle income. It has far lower rates of income equality, far higher rates of human development standards compared to other South Asian economies. And that does present medium to longer term opportunities. Okay, so to wrap it up, what I hear you both saying then is, again, it's a dire situation and indeed fluid still. And as Colin said, anything happened in the next six months. But having said that, between the divestment opportunities and the longer term potential growth, Steve, that you just outlined based on where it stands in terms of its broader economic development, there are opportunities and you can indeed still operate there or even think about it for investment, assuming you have the right risk mitigation in place through stakeholder mapping and knowing your partner and security support put in place and the like. So that's been a really insightful conversation. It just leaves it to me to thank you both for the discussion today and thank everyone for tuning in and listening to today's Asia in Focus. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to our podcast channel and you'll get all new episodes as they are released. Thank you so much and we'll hear from you next time. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of Asia in Focus, be sure to subscribe and make sure to check out our other podcasts as well. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.